Our evening services have brought us through sort of a hit or miss pattern in studying the book of Jeremiah. But we're going to go back to Jeremiah this evening. And, you know, there's a real contrast between teaching from Jeremiah and teaching from the book of Isaiah. In real sense, the book of Isaiah is so rich in its... Um, in its clarity, in content that cannot be mistaken. Uh, There's no confusion as to the things that Jeremiah is saying. He's really uh, wrought out his argument with real crystal crystal clarity. So you can say this is a whole section that from beginning to end uh, is dealing with this given theme as we did this morning. It's it's the Emmanuel section. It's the story of God's confirmation of the promise of, Uh, to David that his kingdom is secure that there will be a Davidic king even in the midst of all of the different troubles that the nation of Israel went through even in the captivities that were to come God's promise would not fail that God would raise up uh, a Davidic king and that kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom and so almost every part of the book of Isaiah is telling a story it is clear what that story is, and it, it gets unpacked and developed with, as I said in the morning message, it accumulates in its, uh, its, uh, its teaching. It's kind of like a snowball that uh, you get it packed in at the beginning in chapter 7 with the promise of Emmanuel, of the, of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son, and his name called Emmanuel. And then it just begins to take on larger and larger proportions as the, as the story rolls on, and the snowball gets bigger. Uh, to the point where you have the, uh, the, the, the child that's born, the, the son that's given, the government upon his shoulders in chapter 9, and you have the fullness of the description of the king, the Davidic king in, in chapter 11. Uh, it just uh, adds uh, to, the, to, the, to the story, to the beauty of it, to the, to the luster of it, to the compelling uh, uh, cap- the, cap- the way it captivates uh, the mind and the heart as we follow it along. Uh, you come to Jeremiah and it's like buckshot. It's everything scattered. Uh, there's bursts of emotion that come out uh, uh, frequently. I was thinking of the word paroxysms, uh, outbursts of, uh, of, of, of anger at points, of weeping at other points, of joy at other points, of confusion at other points. And uh, the very fact that you have these, uh, these outbursts of expressions uh, of horror at one, at one time, of great distress at another time, of uh, Jeremiah bearing his heart and giving forth these streams of complaints and lamentations before the Lord. It gets to be very disjointed. It gets also to be, at times, repetitive. Um, it, it tends to be that it's a little bit confusing, trying to piece all the pieces together. Um, but yet, there is still, in the midst of all of that, brilliance that does emerge, and things that are delightful, and things that are troubling, and things that are also compelling. Not in the same way, in a very different fashion, but yet in a way that I think as we study it out, um, it, it, Jeremiah, very, very different piece of literature, but yet it's worthy of canonical scripture. It's worthy of hearing the voice of God speaking to us uh, through the deep emotions that come forth in the book of Jeremiah. Um, We've been looking at the opening prophecies that are given 
uh, really the story of the jilted lover, of God loving his people, of God bringing his people into a marital relationship to him and the covenant that he makes with the people of Israel when he redeems them from Egyptian bondage. And there was the honeymoon period. There was the period of uh, the, the nation going after the Lord in the wilderness, learning his ways, learning um, through the things they went through. Uh, that the that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. They learned not to tempt the Lord thy God. They lear- learned um, um, to worship the Lord thy, their God, and Him only were they to serve. Um, just as Jesus learned obedience by the things that He suffered, so the people of Israel learned obedience in the wilderness and learned to be loyal to their covenant God and King. But no sooner did they enter into the land of promise and they were in full-scale rebellion. Uh, they were entertaining the worship of the Baals, of other gods, of the Canaanite gods, um, and looking to mix the religion of Yahweh with other uh, entities and other things. Uh, no sooner did they enter into the land that they were um, just filled with forgetfulness of who their God was. And it comes to the place where God comes into the divorce court with them and he's going to give them a bill of divorcement. And when that's done, there's just simply no bringing them back. And yet there is hope. There is hope. In the midst of this situation that seems distressing, despairing, it seems like there's going to be a final severance of God from his people. Yet there is hope. Even though the lesson of the northern kingdom was not learned by the southern kingdom when they saw how that nation was taken captive by the Assyrians. And instead of learning the lesson, they were guilty of even double the sins that the northern kingdom was guilty of. And where do you take a people like this? How do you have any hope with a people like this? And yet the hope really is not in them. The hope is in the God who is able to work his works of grace and mercy amongst even a nation such as this. It is God who is the God who will change their hearts. It's God who is the God who will uh, circumcise their hearts in chapter 4. Even though they're commanded to circumcise their hearts, it's God who gives the true inward work of of, uh, taking away the foreskin of the heart. Uh, It is God who breaks up the fallow ground, even though they're told to do it. Yet the efficaciousness is not in the hands of men, but it's in the hand of the Lord their God. And so even at this point, when you think everything is, is at, at, the, at the most helpless and hopeless state of things, and uh, in fact, in many points it does seem very glum, very distressing, very despairing, not much hope to be found. At least in these early oracles, there's still hope to be found. There's still the call to repent. There's still the call to return. Faithless sons, in verse 22, I will heal your faithfulness. And the response, behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. There's still a hope they'll come back. There's still a hope that they will return. There's still a hope they will see their their, their idolatries for the lie that they are, the delusion that they are. And they come to trust truly in the Lord their God, who is the salvation of Israel. But now there's... uh, in this latter part of chapter 3, and we looked mostly last time at the first part of chapter 3, um, there is something of the marks of what true repentance will look like when it occurs. What are the marks of a penitent people? What are the marks of a people who come out of the darkness of idolatry, come back to the, come back to God, learn to walk in the ways of faith and of faithfulness? 
Well, I think there's some outstanding lines of thought that are found in this section of the book of Jeremiah. Because they're the very things that address the, the things they lack. The very things that the nation did not have, God is able to give. And there's like four things that I believe God gives to this people who we have some hope to think that maybe repentance would be genuine. Maybe repentance would be real. You know, and that's, of course, that's, that's the hard part of reading this section of Jeremiah. There's, there's hopefulness about repentance, but there's always the lingering thought, is it real or is it in pretense? Are they really coming back to God or not? But, you know, we live in hope and we take these lines of thought to apply it to ourselves, to apply it to our own life situation, that there's hope with God. There's hope even when we've gone into the far country. We can return. We can find grace. We can find favor. We can find restoration. We can find healing with the Lord our God. And when that happens, what does it look like? What are the things that God supplies to us that in a time of of backsliding or in a time of being in the far country or in a time of unfaithfulness we were lacking? And I want to suggest that first of all, there's the matter of leadership. Secondly, there's the matter of the things you long for, our longings, leadership longings. Then the third place is the matter of the things we love. Things not only that we long for, but who we love, particularly the people we love, or the chief person we're called upon to love. And the final thing is our loyalty, is our commitment. So you have leadership, longing, love, and loyalty. So that's the outline of where we're going to go this evening. So, And they're all L's, so they're all things that we can remember. Uh, and uh, let's begin. Let's begin with the leaders. Let's begin with the leaders. That was a real problem. That was a problem because there were unworthy leaders. Later on in the book of Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah says that uh, it's the prophets that prophesy falsely and the priests that bear rule by their means. And uh, so, in other words, they're, they're doing what they want to do. Leaders are doing what they want to do. They prophesy lies, and it's okay. They lead by their own wits and their own understanding and their own profit and their own interests, and that's fine with them. They're, they're not obligated to the Lord to lead well and to lead wisely and to lead properly and to lead obediently. They're just doing all the wrong things in their position of leadership. They're evil shepherds, as they're called in chapter 23. And the clear thing is these evil shepherds need to be replaced. There needs to be a new leadership that God gives to his people. Um, And then it's not just the problem of the leaders, but it's also the problem of the followers. It's rare to see the people raise higher than their leaders. Um, When their leaders prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their own wits, uh, the the reaction is my people love to have it so. They just become contented with that. Those are our leaders. Yeah, big deal. My religion, right or wrong. My country, right or wrong. My leaders, right or wrong. Let them lead as they will, and we just get very complacent and very content. But God's not content with these leaders that led his people. And so the Lord says in verse 15, as we think about the call to return, in verse 14, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. I am your master, and I will take you. One from a city, two from a family, I'll bring you to Zion. God's the one who's going to bring restoration. God's the one who's going to initiate this repentance. He's going to bring his people back to him. 
And what is it going to look like when they come back to him? Well, God says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. I'm going to give you leaders that will lead well and wisely. Uh, again, this the matter of a shepherd in the ancient world was uh, not just uh, uh, you know someone who tended to a flock of, uh, of lambs or sheep, but it's a picture of the king. The king was the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel was the king who was to lead the nation wisely and well. Uh, when Moses was going to be taken from his place of leadership in Israel, God said to Joshua uh, that he would be the next shepherd. He would be the one who would lead the people. So it's a position of leadership and the people follow their shepherd. And God says, I'm going to give you the right kind of shepherds. Not these evil shepherds, not these foolish shepherds, not these self-interested shepherds who are only concerned to feed upon the sheep. I'm going to give you the right kind of leaders. They're going to be after my own heart. And they're going to feed you with knowledge and with understanding. And the result of that's going to be when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declare Yahweh. Uh, these are the results that will happen. And so the first thing that God does when he has a design for good to a people, when he has a design to bring them captive to his obedience, is he sends them competent leaders, good leaders. When the people lead, the, the, uh, when the leaders lead, the, the people follow. I think those are the words that are found in the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. When the leaders lead, the people will follow. And so here are leaders that lead wisely and well, feeding the flock of God's people with proper knowledge and proper understanding. And then when you see the fruits of it, it's going to get registered in the things that people long for, in the things that people desire, the things that people des uh, uh, expect. Um, and uh, so you see that the knowledge and understanding instruction of the shepherds will lead the people to denounce the kind of religiosity that sets its value upon the externals. Now, again, the nation of Israel had externals. External manifestation of the presence of God in the glory cloud that they saw visibly on Mount Sinai. Well, it wasn't a question of exercising faith or looking at a glory cloud. They're looking at the thunders and the lightnings and the voice that spoke to them from heaven, the words of the Ten Commandments. Um, it was visible. It was visible. And that God that met them on Sinai is the God that commanded them to build the tabernacle. And central to the tabernacle was the ark. The building of the ark. I have to go back and see. I think it might have been the first thing they were told to, to build. I think it's the first thing was the ark. Because this ark was the place of the inner sanctuary where God's presence would dwell. In his throne room, there was the place in which his feet would rest. The footstool of his feet. That was the ark of the covenant. It expressed the fact that that's God's throne room. God reigns among his people in his house as king over the nation. He's the true shepherd of Israel. But you know when you had things like arks and tabernacles and all of the furniture and all of the holy things, 
invisible fashion, invisible form. The tendency was to rest in those things. The tendency was to say it's these things that provide our security, that provide our safety, that provide our well-being, that provide for our happiness. People become content in the, in the externals, in the things of the religion of Israel, not the God of the religion of Israel. And unfortunately, the Ark of the Covenant became one of those things. Remember, it was that Ark that would go before them. It was the Ark that led them in their battles against their enemies. When the Ark was present, the people of Israel generally would defeat their enemies. But God says, don't trust in it. But there were times when God brought them defeat because they thought it was just a question of having that external thing apart from the heart, apart from spiritual religion, apart from the true worship of God. God allowed them to fall before their enemies because they were not to be contented to trust in the externals. Later on in the temple sermon that uh, um, Jeremiah brings in chapters 7 and following, uh, there's also the trust in the temple. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these is what they were saying. They were saying our confidence that we will never be destroyed by the Babylonians, our confidence that we will never cease to be as a nation, we will never experience total defeat at the hands of our adversaries, will be because the temple's there. As long as God is there and the temple's there, everything's fine. Of course, you have the picture in the book of Ezekiel of God up and leaving the temple, of God, enter, uh, God mounting his, his chariot throne and leaving the temple. The glory departs. God goes to be with his captive people in captivity, in Babylon, in Ezekiel. And so these are not to be the things that we trust. And when God brings genuine repentance, we come not just to trust in the things of God, but in the God of the things. In the God of the things. Um, you know, people trust in the blessings of the Lord. And they interpret that as being the positive things that God brings into their lives when they have health and they have jobs and they have uh, sufficiency. And as long as those are blessings as they see them, then everything is well. Except the reality is that sometimes the blessings of God come in adversity. The blessings of God come when the troubles come. It's in the valleys that we really learn the lessons of God's grace. We really learn to walk with God in an hour of trouble, in a time of deprivation, in a time of, of neediness. Uh, again, Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And the church learns obedience in the things that we suffer. It was recalled to suffer with Christ, that we might be glorified together with him. Sufferings become the school of God to teach us his ways and his will. It is good for me that I've been afflicted, the psalm writer declares, that I might learn your statutes. And so it's the God of the things that's the important thing. The, the, the things of, of paramount importance it's that spiritual religion that brings us into the presence of God not just into the furniture that characterized the throne room or the temple but into the very presence of the God of heaven and earth ark or no ark temple or no temple tabernacle or no tabernacle it's whether we commune with the God of revealed truth 
And, you know, I sometimes clock these things when I go amongst uh, different groupings of Christians uh, because I know we tend many times to center our thoughts upon the things of God and not the God of the things. What I mean by that is I've gone to meetings or pastoral gatherings. Well, I'll sit back and I'll, I'll clock it. How many mentions do we have of uh, the Lord's day, the Lord's house, the Lord's people, the Lord's law, the Lord's word, the Lord's this, the Lord's that, the Lord's the next thing, versus how many references do we have of the Lord of the things? And I really think it does make a difference that we recognize that the things that we sometimes um, prize because they're of God that we sometimes cut them loose from the fact they're of God and from God, and we rest in the things themselves. We have God's law, and God's law is what we glory in. We're the people that actually believe that God hasn't canceled out the Ten Commandments. He still thinks we ought to keep a day for his worship and for his praise. We call it the Lord's Day. But we oftentimes get connected to the things, and we get so identified with the fact that we're the, the people who in our reformed traditions we do not defy the reality that law still pertains to Christian living and Christian morality but sometimes we just get so caught up in the law that we forget the God of the law we forget the reality that it's the law that doesn't save us the law cannot free us from our guilt the law cannot sanctify us all the things the law cannot do but God can do and God does and our glory is never to be in the law it's never to be in the day it's never to be in the things it's always to be tracing back those things to the God who is their author do you understand what I'm saying? I, don't, I can't see the, what the reaction I'm getting from these things but um, we have to trace it back to the hand of God to the blessings of God to our personal debtorship to the God who grants us all these good things and that's what Israel was failing to do they were, they were because of bad teachers and bad leaders they were trusting in all of the wrong things the external things rather than the covenant God himself who now calls them to return to him you've forsaken me the fountain of living water. Now return to me. Come back to me. Not just my things, but come back to me. And so the longings of the heart are never less than the God who authors the blessings, the God who gives us all things richly to enjoy, the God who calls us ultimately to himself. Our longing is for him. Whom have we on earth but you? No, I'm sorry, who have we in heaven but you? There's none upon earth we desire beside you. Though my heart should fail, God is the strength of my heart, my glory forevermore. I will draw near unto the Lord. Not just draw near to the temple, not just draw near to the people, not just draw near to the place of worship, but draw near to the God of the people, the God of the place of worship, the God who calls us into the fellowship of his Son. That's our longing. It should be the longing of repented people to return to the Lord, to draw near to the Lord, to be found in close proximity to and relationship with the God of the covenant. At that time, verse 17... I'm sorry, it's interesting, the Ark of the Covenant that people glory in, he then says, it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It won't be made again. We won't need to go and make another ark. 
Neither the Ark of the Covenant or Noah's Ark. I know they went and made a big Noah's Ark somewhere in the Midwest, and that's fine. That's fine. But it's nothing I'm going to really go and see. I'm not interested in going to see the Ark. It's too much of a temptation to to if we had the the, the relics of those things, really, not just a remake, but uh, the tendency would be to worship it. So God's obliterated those things from the earth. So we're not tempted to those things because it's not those things we should be concerned with. It's the God of, of those things. And uh, again, that's the longing. That's the great desire. That's the thing we glory in, the Lord himself. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of Yahweh, and all nations will gather to it, to the presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. The presence of Yahweh in Jerusalem. It's his presence that's the key thing. It's the key desire. It's the key reality. It's the key longing of the heart renewed, of the heart that is repentant, the heart that returns to God to live and to dwell in his presence. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. Together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave to your fathers for a heritage. And you know, there's one thing to be said for the fact, I haven't really said this before, but maybe I will. Um, one of the things I think that's really key to understanding the book of Jeremiah, maybe a little better than we tend to, is to emphasize the prose parts. The parts like we see here in this section that's not found in poetic uh, verse. It's the prose part that tends to be more explanatory, where the statements become a little bit clearer. Sometimes in the poetry, I mean, poetry is powerful. Poetry is, um, it, it sings, it, it affects the emotions, but sometimes it gets a little bit confusing, especially as the poetry of Jeremiah is many times just vested with emotion. And it's these uh, prose parts that become uh, more helpful in the way of explanation. And so God's explaining, what does it mean when the people are penitent, when they turn, when they return to him? Well, again, it's this matter of leadership. It is this matter of renewed longings for himself, for his fellowship, for his presence, for drawing near to him. Then the poetic part begins again. And again, it's the picture of love. Really, love, that's the deficiency in Israel's relationship with the Lord and Judah's relationship with the Lord. Again, it's the problem of the unfaithful wife. It's also the problem of the disobedient children. And you see those two uh, metaphors, they're kind of a, they're mixed metaphors because they kind of blend together. Uh, you don't usually mix the relation of a husband and a wife and a child and a father and a child, but, but God does that in this passage. Um, and it's particularly, you see it in verse 20, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You've been a treacherous wife, and you've also been a disobedient son. Return, O faithless sons. They're faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. So you've been treacherous wives against the God who is your husband, who's espoused you to himself in love, and you've been faithless sons who've not walked in God's ways. 
And God says, when I, I led you uh, and gave you this pleasant land, when I brought you into the land of promise, in verse 19, uh, that you would be a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. You would be an inheritance for me. You would be my people, returned to me, restored to me in this land that I gave you, most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. See, something of the disappointed hopes of God, that God is, is longing for a relationship of obedient children to him as a father, to faithful spouses, a faithful spouse who will honor him as their husband. He enters in to these relationships of intimacy, of the most tender intimacy. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. God has a tender heart towards his children. And he wants an intimate relationship with his children. And he wants children that will reflect him, reflect his image, imitate God as beloved children, the Apostle Paul says, but they would have none of it. They would not be faithful children. They will not be obedient children. He enters into a relationship of a loving spouse to a wife and pours out upon her all the, all the riches and the depths of his loving heart towards his spouse. And she does not respond in love. It's unrequited love. She treacherously goes after other husbands, after other objects of alliances with idols and with other nations and turning their back upon the Lord as the living God. And so God meets his people in love and love is not reciprocated. But now when God brings a people to repentance, when God brings a people back from the far country, back to himself, there's not only the return of faithful leadership, and not only the return of spiritual longings, but there's also the return of committed love. Return, O faithless sons, verse 22. I will heal your faithfulness. What's the response? Behold, we come to you. Behold, we come to you. The response of a repentant heart is, Lord, you've beckoned us. You've called us in your love. And we come to you. For you are the Lord our God. We have no place else to turn. We have no one else to look to. We have no one else who truly loves us. We have no one else that truly cares for us. No one else who truly provides for us. You are the Lord our God. And we've been out in the far country. And we see what it leads to. It leads to the pig pens. It leads to eating the things that were that the swines were feeding upon. We see the hills are a delusion. The hills were where the high places were, where the worship of false gods were being conducted. We see it's a delusion. It's a lie. There's nothing true or real to be found there. The orgies on the mountains, all of their worship celebrations and vile 
practices are simply a delusion and a lie. Truly in Yahweh our God is the salvation of Israel. God is the God who heals the wanderings of his people. We've seen that idolatry leads us leads you to nothing. There's no profit in it. There's no blessing in it. There's no hope in it. There's no enrichment in it. There's nothing of truth in it. There's nothing of reality or flourishing or, or good. It's all a compilation of distress and evil and lies and utter despair. We come back to God because here is the place where we find genuine interest in us as image bearers. He loves us. He provides for us. He genuinely is concerned for our good and our well-being. And a repentant heart responds in love, returns back to God. Behold, we come to you. You are the Lord, our God. We turn away from every other lover. We turn away from every other idol. We turn away from every other option. The Lord alone we turn to and we return in love because we have been first loved. And with leaders that teach us well, that provide us and feed us with knowledge and understanding, that produce in our own minds the understanding that the important things, the things we should be longing for, are the things of spiritual religion, not just externals, but of coming before the presence of God himself and encountering a God who loves us and who instills within our hearts reciprocal love, to love him in return, then the finality of that relationship is that loyalty is the resultant commitment. That we will not stray, we will not turn away, we will not look for other options. It's the Lord himself who has our full attention, our full allegiance, our full commitment in a relationship of lifelong commitment. And we see in the words of verse 24 from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers have labored. Now it can be debated what the shameful thing is. I rather think the shameful thing is, is the idolatry that people have been guilty of. The horrible thing that's not true of any other nation who has turned aside from their God to that which is no God. That's what Israel has done. And it is, in fact, a shameful thing. At the great exchange, we looked at Romans, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshipping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Turning from the glory of the, of the eternal God to worship beasts and creeping things and such. And in that path of following after the shameful things from our youth, everything has been destroyed, devoured, eaten up. Everything for which our fathers labored. The fullness of the blessing of the land of promise, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let us let our dishonor cover us. If we've sinned against Yahweh our God, we and our fathers from our youth to this day, We've not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God that comes to be the true accountability for our own sins and our transgressions, all of our ways of waywardness, and there comes to be the recognition 
that path is a shameful path. And the only path back to honor, the only path back to glory, is a path of principled commitment to the Lord our God, to following after Him and following after His ways. That's the invitation God gives in the fourth chapter. And we're not going to expound it tonight. We're just going to read it. If you return, O Israel, declares Yahweh, to me you should return. Not just to my things, but to me. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives, in other words, you enter in to a covenant commitment, an oath-sworn pledge of loyalty to this God in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him. Again, that's the Abrahamic blessing. That will come to the nations, that the nations will bless themselves in the seed of Abraham, and in him they shall glory. The call of God then is to break up the fallow ground, not sowing among thorns, circumcising for yourself the foreskin of your hearts. You turn away from all evil, You turn to all that is good and true and righteous, all that surrounds God's worship and God's presence and God's ways and God's will and God's honor and God's glory and truth and justice and righteousness enter into an oath-sworn commitment to this God and His ways that brings us into the ways of genuine allegiance, genuine loyalty. This God is our God He will be our guide, even till death. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, there's no other way. There's no other option. There's no other lamb. There's no other name. There's no other hope in heaven or earth or sea. No other hiding place from guilt or shame. None but thee. Borrowing a little bit of Christina Rossetti's great hymn. It's the things of God that become our our meat and our drink, becomes our joy and our rejoicing becomes the things that we are committed to. This is what repentance involves. This is where we, how repentance is made manifest. This is what repentance looks like. Leaders who feed us with knowledge and understanding, who show us the things that are truly important in the way of where our longings should lie for the God of the blessings and not the blessings of, the God, of, of this God that brings us to see his love to us, showering us with his fatherly love, his love as a husband to a wife, a love that will not let us go, and that elicits from our hearts that covenant commitment of loyalty to him. That's what repentance looks like, like folks. And uh, this is what uh, Jeremiah desperately long to see Israel experience. This is what God desperately wanted for his people. And sadly, this was not anything that was really shown in great measure in Israel of old. But it should be the things that characterize the people of God under the new covenant. The people of God who have heard the gospel, who have heard the joyful sound, who experienced something of the true repentance that leads unto life, the true conversion of the power of God's grace that we love leaders that guide us well mostly of course it's the Lord himself who is our shepherd that those under shepherds that feed us with knowledge and understanding and that 
bring us along for the things that are the best and bring us into the orbit of God's love brings us to the commitment of true covenant commitment and loyalty so with that we end our consideration of Jeremiah 3 and going a little bit into chapter 4 and uh, again it's probably one of the more hopeful parts of Jeremiah just simply because repentance is still on the table it's still something that God is calling the people to and it with the hope that there will be those in Israel who will respond there will be that remnant in accordance with the election of grace who will respond believingly and will know the reality of genuine repentance may God make us to know that reality ourselves and to bring us to pray that uh, we would not lack leadership we would not lack longings for the good things we would not lack love and we would not lack loyalty may the Lord be pleased to bless his word let's go to him in prayer Father we're thankful for the Lord's day that you've given us and your presence the opportunity to draw near to you and worship and to draw near to your word and to learn of you we're thankful for your blessings to us today and pray your blessings would go with us throughout the days of the week before us give us hearts to love you to long for you to fellowship with you to walk in wisdom and knowledge and true understanding and again to so conduct ourselves in the world that uh, people will know that we have been with Jesus we're the people of the living God and that there would be something in our lives that would register the genuine power of a new creation we ask you to hear our prayers we ask you to bless your people as we come to you in Jesus name Amen